Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the Soundtrack to a Life. Introducing happiness. Happiness. Look who's found you someone. Look who stole you. Soundtrack to a Life. Chris here, because that is the person who is here every episode. With me once again is Mike. Hello, Mike. Hello, Mike. What have you been up to since we saw you last? School, school, and more school. As per usual, uh, working overnights as well. That sounds just exhausting. It is. Uh, grabbing a two-hour nap before classes and then another three hours after classes before I have to go to work. Yeah, that uh, gets a little tiring after a while. I've always said that five hours of sleep being consecutive was more of a guideline than a rule. Yeah, it drags about midway through uh, the winter semester here now, and yeah, I am just waiting for spring. Just waiting for spring. Bring it on. It's a coming. Yeah. And Mike and I are here today discussing the Rio Statics 1994 album, Introducing Happiness. So, this was the first concert I ever saw. This band supporting this record, and the soundtrack to the movie Whale Music in particular, at 16 years of age. The venue, I think, is a movie theater now? That's the sort of detail you wish you'd paid more attention to at the time, but at 16, everything is new, and it's tough sometimes to figure out what's more important to remember than not. But the show itself. Of all the weird Canadian power-pop bands of the early to mid-90s, and there were a lot of those, and they were all extremely good, my first gig could have easily have been any of them. I've seen Sloan a double-digit number of times. I'll catch the odds whenever they come to town. I lived and breathed Spirit of the West for a good long time. And I'll go to the mat for it, Blue Rodeo, having written the single most beautiful song in this country's history. But it wasn't any of the others. It was Rio Statics, in support of a perfect pop single, and the soundtrack to a super weird movie about a whale that almost nobody saw, and a pop album designed to test you, that you might prove yourself worthy of it, rather than the other way around. It was this deliberately weird, off-kilter, deeply Canadian band, thrashing through their country's history and insecurity, and wetting it to left-of-center pop gems, scuffing them up just enough to let you know they've seen some shit, and leaving them to be discovered by whatever audience might come along. And one did. Rio Statics were never the tragically hip. They weren't as radio-friendly as Sloan or The Odds. They didn't capture one big cultural moment as commandingly as Blue Rodeo or Spirit of the West. They didn't define the radio like 5440, but what they did manage to do through their decades-long career was make you feel like you were part of something you weren't necessarily supposed to be part of. Where the hip were the biggest band in the world, and Blue Rodeo were beloved national treasures, Rio Statics was 90s CanCon's weird kids' table. They made you feel like you've lucked into something unexpected, some weird corner, something hidden a little bit out of the way that the cultural gatekeepers of the world would rather you not think too hard about. Rio Statics sounded, if you were 16 and very much wanted to have something you belonged to, like you were getting away with something. And growing up, that's a powerful feeling indeed. You can trace a lot of my taste, the power pop bands, the fiddly, detail-oriented lyrics, the offbeat production choices, the bands who always felt like they were going to break wide, who deserved to but never quite did, to this one Rio Statics concert I saw one time when I was 16 years old. And I love them for that. So, Mike. You'd never heard Introducing Happiness by Rio Statics, and now you have. 
Tell me, what do you think? I take your point of being invited into something that you aren't sure you're supposed to be in. I have to say, honestly, I was not a fan of this album. No? No. I don't know if it's just I was not initiated or what. It didn't hit me at the right age. But as a man coming up on 40, this album just did nothing for me. Oh, man. That is disappointing. I do go back to I, this a lot. I will readily admit there is some fine musicianship in there. And you can tell they know how to craft songs. But it just didn't do anything for me. Admittedly, the first time I listened to it, I almost rage quit out of it. Oh, wow. I couldn't take more songs about a fish. There are so many songs about a fish on here. Yeah, I just, it seemed so insipid. Man. Yeah, they'd just come off doing a, uh, doing whale music. Mm -hmm. A movie about a Brian Wilson type figure who, I want to say, falls in love with a whale. I did watch that movie. But I was definitely 15 or 16 when I watched it. Yeah. So I'm a little fuzzy on all of the details. I He incorporates whale music into his music. I vaguely remember its existence. I never did see it. Oh, ironically, I went to, I went to school with uh, the writer's nephew. Oh, nice. Yeah, uh, same last name, the whole thing. And it's not like you're going to find many Quarringtons in the world. That checks out. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Um... Again, there's a lot of great musicianship on the album. There's a couple of really interesting jazzy tracks, but I found the lyrical content either completely beyond my grasp or ungraspable. I couldn't tell which. I've got a sore spot for quote-unquote quintessential Canadian bands that come exclusively from Toronto where it's all stuff that makes perfect sense to anyone from Ontario and probably is even parsable by people from Quebec or, you know, New Brunswick or somewhere like that. But to me, who hasn't lived out east in his lifetime, I don't understand, you know, cottage country. I don't understand some of this stuff. And I didn't like the hip when they did it. I didn't like this when it, whenever they brought up that Eastern-centric Canadiana. Oh. Yeah, there's something that, to me, is exclusionary in it, and I'm not really big on that. Fair enough, and that is a tendency of Canadian bands to go really granular on very local references. Bare Naked Ladies are another perfect example. They've got a lot of songs about the suburbs of Toronto, but... I know nothing of these places. It means nothing to me. And even in even in the emotion of the song, I still don't get it. See, I never had that problem with these guys because um, I think enough of the songs are universal on this one. Okay. Uh, they do later do an entire album about literally the group of seven. Uh, that would who, be, that would who be you even would, harder. <laughs> who you would probably enjoy dramatically even less. If that is a bugaboo that you have with music. I, I mean, I, I suppose it's worth a, a shot, but, but, um... But yeah, this one I've always... Like, there are a lot of very specific Central Eastern Canadiana flourishes to it, but things like... Like, the refrain introducing happiness. Happy? Yes. Wedded to just a howl-it-out-your-car-window summertime fun time jam is if you're howling out the car window on some kind of road trip 
a pretty universal sentiment to me. Fan letter to Michael Jackson does not hold up, but I feel like that is more Michael Jackson's fault. I, I, would, than, I, would, I would tend to agree. Than anything these um, guys did. I, I will say that I did enjoy hearing various samplings and stuff like that that I haven't heard since the early 90s. You know, various you know scratches and shit like that that haven't been really par for the course for, well, 20-something years. It was interesting to hear some of those throwback sounds. You never realize growing up that the music that you're listening to has a house sound that is one day going to date. Yeah, I mean, my first impression was this is a very highly educated band. Yeah, they feel who, like that. Who have all of these academic in-jokes that only apply to their specific academic institution. And so to someone from any other portion of the country, you either need to dig really deep in to figure it out, or you're just on the outs. I can kind of see that. And yeah, this isn't a band that ever broke in any kind of like wide mainstream way. Claire, which was also written for the Whale Music soundtrack, mm -hmm. was their only top 40 hit in Canada. I, um, I did recognize that one. Uh, I think there was another one on there that I did recognize as well. I think it may have just been from our joint past uh, in the drama area that I may have heard it. I believe it was Full Moon Over Russia. For some reason, that one, I could swear I'd heard it before. Just just random memory from the past. But yeah, not uh, none of this stuff is stuff that would have been on the radio or anything like that. No, um, no. And particularly, this album would have come out I was beginning a junior high sort of thing, yep. so it, it would have been way more advanced than I was at that time. That checks out. Um, so it does make sense why I didn't investigate it at that point in my life. And then, you know, as I hit high school, I started to have those strong opinions on, uh, you know, the Canadiana as interpreted by the hip, by the bare naked ladies, and by, I guess, also the rheostatics. That's true. Although, like, Toronto-centric Canadiana is still, still, oh, it's still more nationalism than having some Americans tell you how you're growing up. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm not saying that there is a wrong Canadiana. I'm just saying I would, I would hope for a more inclusive Canadiana. That checks out. And Claire, to me, holds the fuck up. Like, purify me, purify me, Claire. Let me save a soul that is impaired with the harmonies and the weird space rock faded into the background. That was, yeah, interesting, yes. Like, it just it sounds like a band that is willing to take up as much space as their songs require. Yeah, uh, I definitely noticed that from the album. They just go off a few times. Yeah, yeah, it's the sound of a band going bugfuck crazy in the studio. And a lot of it is just like a straight-up Brian Wilson pastiche. Yeah. But at 16... You don't know that. Yeah, of course not. <laughs> we have no idea of the history of this shit. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, like it's the it's the best possible argument that can be made on behalf of this kind of pop maximalism. Like, mm. there's a ton going on, and at times it can be tough to keep track of. But if it falls together for you, it falls together really hard. I can appreciate the high amount of jazz work done in it, especially for it being a pop album. Like, you wouldn't find that hardly anywhere else where you'd have literal jazz motifs coming in into pop music. 
I can't name another band who would do it right now, or even back then for that matter. So that I can totally appreciate. Yeah, a lot of the 90s were um, crunchy riffs. Oh, there are those and, in here too. And or R&B singles. Um, to have a band come in with impeccable, immaculate studio production and a jazz influence. Yeah, it's it, it was impressive. I don't know how much musical training any of these guys had or anything like that, but this is a fair ways into their career, is it not? Yeah, it, I don't think it's 10 years, but it's closing in on 10. Okay, because you can clearly hear that they've been playing themselves, but playing as a band for a long while. Like, there's a lot of cohesion to the sound. Yeah, they really know each other by this stage in their career. And they do it on an indie budget, too. Okay. Well, I mean... Indie for the 90s? Well, I mean, like, indie as in Claire was their only top 40 hit in Canada, and it goes without saying they never got on the radio outside of Canada. This music is literally so specific that you are complaining that as an Albertan you're not getting all of the references. What fucking chance does a dude in Texas have? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Scotland is not going to be snapping this up. It's the, not the latest club hit in Germany. No, no. Yeah. And I do appreciate bands that don't sound like they give a shit about exporting. Oh, they definitely, they, you can tell. They, they are in it for the music, for their own taste in it. They don't give a fuck what's going on with the rest of it. They don't even really care whether anyone listening to it in Canada gets it. It is densely packed, but also remarkably light. Lyrically, there's not a whole lot going on through this album. There's a couple refrains here and there, and there's some interesting bits, but this is not a, you know, a Tolstoy novel. There's not a whole story being told in each song. And there's a quaintness to that and an endearing quality, but it's also, again, for the uninitiated, really, really difficult to delve into. That's fair. And yeah, there was a scrappy underdog quality to a lot of Canadian music uh, from most, this period. Most all Canadian music from this period, certainly. Yeah, we were setting ourselves up in opposition. We were the anti-U.S. In the same uh, spirit in which we would turn on a band the second that they broke wide. Please see Bare Naked Ladies for a perfect example of. Sure. Crash Test Dummies got the same thing. I didn't even know that they broke wide beyond Canada. I mm Went international. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that was a hit everywhere. I would never have known. I know they, which, they like, did have one track on the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack, so that might... that That's, that's, that's probably what got them there. Probably. Yeah. And yeah, like there was there was a certain amount of, oh, they broke uh, internationally? Well, fuck them then. But they're the same fucking band, you yeah, guys. Yeah, like, they, they did not change. They, it's, it's the Canadian perspective of things. And I like that level of nationalism. Okay. I, I'm, I, I'm proud to say that, no, if you're, if you're a Canadian, you're staying here. I appreciate a really low stakes sense of nationalism that does not affect anything in the real world. Yeah, uh, yeah oh, absolutely nothing in the real world. Yeah, I, uh, I would claim that nationalism is fundamentally toxic. Oh, absolutely. However, every year, I definitely cheer for whatever Canadian teams are still in the cup until the last one gets kicked out of the cup, at which point, fuck hockey. So well, I, it's, it's I know where it's fewer and farther between that that happens. Yeah, so I know where it comes from. Yeah, not like it's from nowhere. But yeah, this is a band that has had 
very modest album sales sounding this produced and together and immaculate in the mid 90s like the bgs put together immaculately produced pop but while they were doing it they were literally the biggest band in the history of guitar music Mm -hmm. and had an unlimited budget and weeks in the studio to do it these guys it's like oh you've got 48 hours so yeah yeah like a band today could do this yeah because they could run it all through computers well they they can essentially do home recording yeah yeah as it were but at the time this was recorded that was unheard of you are bashing it out in the studio and figuring it out and when you run out of time you are out of time son well then kudos to them for what they accomplished with the time they had and whoever the actual producer for the album was i don't know if it was one of them or if it was some other individual but uh i mean it is a very well produced album i can definitely give it that not my particular flavor but fair And, uh, I mean, you're apparently not the only one, because their label definitely dropped them after this. Uh, yeah, I was reading somewhere that they just simply couldn't find a way to market them. Which totally stands. That makes absolute sense, because how the hell would you market, as a record company trying to market a band, how the hell would you do that with this album? I mean, like, yeah, I guess. Sloan got put on the radio. Sloan was more approachable than this, though. Yeah, maybe. Like, Sloan... Sloan was going for the, like, slightly retro feel, but it was still... You'd say Cheap Trick. Sloan were trying to be Cheap Trick. Um, yeah. But and mostly still, successfully. It was still close enough to grunge that the Canadian music scene at the time accepted it. And then they made, then they made their own way through it. This is unlike anything that I can think of that I was hearing at the time. Yeah, this is... Like, it is way out there. And so you can't even sort of appeal... Like, there are some crunchy guitar moments in there, but to call this a grunge album would not work. To call this even an alternative album would not work. So you're losing that marketability right there. You know, that sort of entry. Yeah. And you couldn't couldn't market it to, like, jazz listeners because it's by no means jazz. It's definitely a guitar pop record. Exactly. So... I can understand from the marketing perspective why they would be dropped. I don't I don't think that's an acceptable reason to drop a band by any stretch of the imagination. But business being business, they're gonna that is how that they're goes. gonna have to business it up, you know. And realistically, they did not need to be on sire. This is not a band with major label energy. They aren't ever going to fill a stadium. <laughs> they don't need a six week marketing push leading up to the album release so that it debuts at number one. This band, I'm sure, got dropped from Sire, was back in the studio a few weeks later, and then indied out something. Which, having heard the rest of their catalog, was also very good, but only if you like Rio Static. Yeah, I, I remember I was working at Chapters when they released uh, The Story of Harmelodia. And like they made a big deal of it and all of this, and I was just like, I heard one track, and I'm like, nope, not for me. That's fair. And it's like, it's based off of a kid's book if i remember correctly it's it, like the entire basis of it is based off of a kid's book written by one of the band members sure so, so it's like yeah i mean at, at 19 years of old it was like no that's definitely not for me yeah and a lot of canadian music at this juncture was too deliberately weird mm-hmm. like sloan and the odds and the hip were pretty straightforward yeah 
you know, the hip at this uh, during this era was. I mean, that's still. But uh, like, Crash Test Dummies were a weird folk band singing about a kid who came to school with hives one time. Yeah. Grapes of Wrath were doing like a '60s throwbacky psychedelia thing. No band in the world could get away with sounding like the Bare Naked Ladies and being a real band until the Bare Naked Ladies did. Well, and that was it. I mean. That was sort of a flash in the pan. Their first three albums were what I consider the Bare Naked Ladies, and then they've got... Then there's the one that broke down in the States. See, I still have a lot of time for that record. Uh, because it is transitional. It, you can still hear the previous ladies in there. Well, that, and at the time that they were recording it, they didn't know that that was going to be the one that broke in one. Exactly. Like, when they started trying to write to that market, I started drifting away from what they were doing. Mm-hmm. But... Those first four kind of hold up. Oh, hey. They're very charming. Uh, Sometimes Born, they're very annoying. Born on Canadians. is one of my favorite albums of all time. Yeah. And maybe you should drive. I will absolutely revisit. And that one makes me cry every fucking time. I think I've seen Stephen Page play every year since he's been kicked out of that band. Nice. Which, by the way, go see Stephen Page play. Yeah. Oh, he's, turns out, he's a wicked artist. It turns out he wrote every song for that band that I liked. And he had... Deeply emotional ones, yeah. All the rest of it was Ed Robertson. Yeah. Which was all that sort of, like, staccato vocal. Yep. Uh, he did the fast rapping. Yeah, and, okay, sure, there was a place for that in a couple of spots on an album, but when you start getting entire albums of nothing but that, it's good night, no more. Yeah, but his half of the record sounded better at a party. Admittedly. They were a good band for that. One of them wrote music that sounded good at a party. One of them wrote music that sounded good on headphones. Yeah, well, I mean... By the time the two of them stopped being a productive team, I had aged to the point where I preferred music that sounded good on headphones. Yeah. So I picked the one that provided me that and went with him. Perfect call. Exactly. And yeah, in spite of not um, having sold boatloads of radio-friendly, market-pleasing units, Whale Music and Melville by Rio Static will frequently crop up on lists of the best Canadian albums ever made. Because, like, they do know their way around a tune, obviously, and they were of their time, but a little bit separated from it. And realistically, because this is made for Canadian cultural critics. Many of whom, you are correct, live and work in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they sure shit don't live in Calgary. No, they do not. No, they do not. We have chosen not to produce art here. I mean, they barely exist in Vancouver. All, I mean, all of the Canadian art scene is apparently Toronto. Definitely not. With an off offshoot of maybe Montreal, but... I don't know. I think Vancouver is Vancouver. a source of a lot of good bands, but I think during this period, that was ramping up. Yeah, it was still in the ramp-up phase, because at the time, the only one that I could think of would have been, like, 5440. They were specifically from Vancouver. Yeah, 5440 was definitely um, Spirit of the then, West. Were they from Vancouver? I believe so, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, that I didn't know. But then, like, later 90s, you start getting Moist and Limb Lifter and people like that starting to appear in Vancouver. And it started becoming its own sort of nebulous thing. At least for a little while. I'm not sure it still is. No, I think it is. Okay. Well, they're still... I mean, like, it's mostly members of New Pornographers, but... It's just offshoots of that? There are, yeah, there's so many members <coughs> of New Pornographers... There's so many members of New Pornographers, and they all have bands, mm -hmm. so... <laughs> yeah, stands to reason. It's the same deal um, when Minneapolis had a, just a thriving funk scene 
And yeah, a lot of it was just Prince ghostwriting for people. But, but the point still is, works. that counts. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll buy it. Goddamn. A lot of a lot of these bands, like everybody, was so fucking weird during this period. Yeah. It's got to be the drugs. That could be. Could be. Although I don't think a Canadian band in the '90s was making drug addiction money. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Well, I mean, I think it was just an underlying sense of you are never going to break the top forty outside of Canada. But don't worry. While you're here, you can be as weird as you want to be and no one will call you on it. And a lot of bands embraced that. Oh, absolutely. I would call it the greatest period in our nation's history of music, but I don't want to come off as too boomery. Uh, yeah. Lionizing uh, your actual you, specific youth. You could say that of, like, 63 or of 93. The greatest period in the history of music is whenever you were 17. And therefore, I, I completely agree. And therefore susceptible to pop music. And it will also not surprise you to learn, given the 90s Canadiana of it all, that these guys did join the Another Roadside Attraction tour one of the mm, years. That makes total sense. Yeah, real easy layup. That would have been around the era of uh, Tragically Hip uh, Day for Night, I'm thinking. Give it Some, Somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. Which, admittedly, was my only real big hip album. That was the only one that I really got behind. Everything oh. before and after just sort of got to Canadiana. Yeah, no, fully completely was dope as hell. Uh, I listened to that I one, but to... only because there were so many radio signals. And, of course, when that one would have been released, I was like 10, 11. So. I had to bring in an Australian person for my Tragically Hip episode. Oh, fuck. Because I was definitely never going to find anyone locally who did not who know did not Tragically Hip. <laughs> and it will not well, surprise you to learn, he hated it. Some oh, references my. do not export. That wouldn't surprise me. You might have had better luck with the Tea Party, because they were actually quite big down. Tea Party, I like. Okay. I don't know that I am in love with the Tea Party record. They're in that weird donut hole, because this show is me forcing music that means something to me, mm. emotionally, on people, and then them bringing me stuff that I have never heard. And Tea Party are in that weird... Medium. Yeah, no. Tea Party are good. Where I've heard them, but I, they mean nothing. They're good. I like them, though. Like, if you put them on, I'll enjoy listening to yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't love them enough to force them on someone. Mm. And I definitely like them too much to have them forced on me. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. said, Temptation was a bop. Oh, yeah. I, I loved that album. But, yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me that uh, an Aussie didn't like the hip. They would, uh, obviously, have never heard them. I mean... Hell, there there are people in Detroit who haven't heard of the hip. Like, it, yep. like literally across a goddamn river. I read somewhere that half the Tragically Hip's audience in the United States was just Canadian expats. Wouldn't surprise me in the least. <laughs> Let's watch them in a much smaller venue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it seems so much better that this way. This is really intimate. Wow, I can't believe they're playing here. <laughs> Normally it's in stadiums back home. This is just a tiny little dive bar. Bands who don't give a shit about finding an audience outside the country. See them outside the country. So which, which uh, do you remember where you saw these guys? I think down on 8th, where that movie theater is now. The Globe? Yeah, I think it's where the Globe is now, but I don't know that for certain. Or was it the one that was across, the Uptown that was across Ooh, the street? shit, yeah, it might have been Uptown. Which is now, of course, closed because they didn't do the upkeep on it, but it's a heritage building, so they can't demolish it so 
That's... Yeah, that, that was a beautiful space. That would have been great to see these guys in. And terrific weird show. They projected the um, the colors from the album cover. Yeah. Which, like, I don't talk a lot about album covers on this show. That is not part of how I interact with music. But in this case, fucking gorgeous. Just, like, how much the yellows... Oh, yeah, it's, it's really vibrant. Yeah, it's really evocative. It pops really well against itself. Mm-hmm. It didn't say on the Wikipedia that I looked up who did that picture, but it's a good-looking fish. <laughs> um, That's one good-looking fish. It looks good. It's a fish. It looks good. There are songs inside about fish. Mike hates them. I, I just... I, I, was, I was listening to it, and I'm just like, what the fuck do I care about a fish? Sometimes you gotta like, care really deeply about a fish. Like if it's if it's in the form of sashimi that I'm going to ingest, sure, I'm all for it. Sometimes you just got to appreciate the beauty and wonder that is a fish, and this album gives you more of that than you require. Oh, absolutely, yeah, a whole lot more of that. And like I will say, if you soured on the Canadianisms of this record, take a couple of steps back mm. and look at their career more widely. Okay, and as far as Canadiana and how bloody-mindedly quirky they are, mm -hmm. it gets so much worse. Oh, God. We are talking whole albums in tribute to the Group of Seven that were mm -hmm. commissioned at the request of the National Gallery. We are talking unironic Gordon Lightfoot covers. See, we are I talking... get behind that because I quite like Gordon Lightfoot. Oh, yeah? Just in terms of his songwriting ability, it's not he's not a great singer. He's not even that great of guitar player but as a songwriter i can definitely appreciate what he did i'm going to link you to his the rio statics covering the wreck of the edmund fitzgerald okay and then request your opinion on that as well all right uh and then obviously hockey content just so much hockey content oh god just yeah it, there was yeah there was a lot of uh the leafs uh you know a lot of talk of the leafs winning the cup and crap like that and it was like wow I don't know if you stole that outright from the hip or if that's just a general idea that uh, all Torontonians need to have in their music or... Absolutely. Uh, Tom Cochran did a story about a hopeful hockey player as well. Big league. Yeah. yeah. Um, Everyone by law in this nation. I don't think he specifically references a team, though. No. I, no. See, that I can appreciate for the hockey culture of Canada because it's all-encompassing. Whereas, if you're talking only about the fucking Maple Leafs, there is an issue. <laughs> That's fair, but I mean, you're in that town. I'm not. Which is why you failed to connect with this. <laughs> but rather, they are. So, the track, uh, now that I look at it, the track that I nearly rage quit on was Cephalus Worm. Oh, yeah? I was just grated on my nerves, and I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I think I specifically had to pause and go for a smoke because I was just like, no, no more, no. <laughs> this far, no further. Oh, no. See, I find it, I find it personally very beautiful when a band refuses to put themselves in even the vicinity of a universal theme <laughs> and instead digs their heels in to play something really small and obviously personal that I will never understand. That was, yeah, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. I was just like, I no, I, I've endured this far, but I can't go any further. This is, this is more than I can take. And yeah, I, I paused, went for a cigarette, and, 
I think I actually poured myself a drink because I was just like, I, I, I count myself as being able to figure out music at least a little bit better than this, and it just wasn't coming to me by this point. That would not have been the place in the album where I would have predicted that would happen. Where, where did you figure it would happen? I don't know, like probably Jesus was once a teenager too, because what even is that? That was just a weird track. That, uh, that, I don't like know. It's such an odd song and they're committing to it. Just oh, yeah. 110%. Just full commitment to it. And that just... and then me and Stupid, they played original new wave rock. Yeah, I keep coming back to there's clearly talent here. It's just not talent that I can personally appreciate. I don't know if it's if it's a me thing, if it's so so intrinsic to them or what, but it just it didn't impact me. I mean, it's not unreasonable given the fact that they did only have the one radio song over the course of a career that is approaching 40 years. And the fact that they routinely show up on critics' lists of the best Canadian music ever made. This is absolutely the kind of band that requires a lot of buy-in from you, the listener. Yeah. And that if it does not receive that buy-in... It's going to get nothing. Yeah. You're either all-in or you're... Entire or you fold. It is the all-in poker hand or you're just out. Yeah, I noted while I was re-listening to it, this is the kind of band where side A makes me wonder why they weren't a bigger radio band at the time, and side B makes me go, oh yeah, no. No, that makes sense. I get it. Yeah. I get why you weren't on the radio. That makes good sense to me. And then you have to decide within your heart if that is a fun creative energy for you to listen to or not. It's not to say that I won't listen to this again. I'm I'm gonna have to not be in school when I'm doing it because I've got too much other shit on my mind at that point, and I'm gonna have to devote a full day to just going deep into it and yep. seeing if I can parse out the lyrics and shit like that, and seeing if I can find what the hell is being said, or if there's nothing being said, then what the spirit of it is. Or... Yeah, just unpacking every weird detail from it because even when they do make pop music you kind of get the impression that they're low-key making fun of the idea of pop music i kept coming back to i couldn't tell if they were taking themselves excessively too seriously or remarkably without any seriousness at all it was it was one extreme or the other there was no sort of okay we're, we're drinking our own kool-aid here but we know it's kool-aid it was either we're just drinking water or we're drinking the most concentrated Kool-Aid ever. And I couldn't tell which it was. Well, I mean, my instinct is that by this point, they were firmly entrenched in a bunch of guys in a studio trying to make each other laugh. Trying for the break. Yeah. Yeah. Tr yeah. Tr just trying to uh, get one another to break. Yeah. Yeah. Because they had not and never would reach a point where the release of a new record was a news item and people were writing eight-page think pieces on what does it all mean. That is not how a band like this operates. Mm -hmm. And I think an artist needs that kind of self-reinforcing echo chamber in order to get really self-important about what they're doing. You can't believe that you are the biggest, greatest, and most important artist the world has ever known if you're still renting. Yeah, I guess you can go back to the Prince example on that. Yeah, he needed to buy an enormous house with a recording studio inside well, before and, he got really world-dominating. Well, for the album you had me listen to, 
he had to buy in fully on that because there was some weird ass shit on that. Absolutely, it was. Yeah, I guess. Is, I guess maybe. Yeah, uh, there must have been full buy-in on their part. I'm just not sure if they were asking of full buy-in from the listener. Yeah, like this is a this is a smaller, more personal record talking about growing up in the GTA, mm -hmm. which I got really into, possibly more so than I needed to. Great fucking game, bro. Yeah. <laughs> and I do still put these guys on a couple times a year. Yeah. Like, I'll go, ah, fuck it, I'm running the real yeah, estate catalog. It's, it's time now. This is yeah, very it's, good. It, it's that day. Put it on while you go to bed and then wake up and see what weird shit Spotify has served up for you. <laughs> Which, I guess, brings us reasonably near the end. I'm going to ask three questions because that is how these episodes end. I suspect right. I may know what your answers are. Probably. Y'all ever going to listen to Introducing Happiness again? I will give in some time and space. That checks out. Do you want to explore the rest of their catalog? Indeterminate on that one. That it's checks gonna, out. It's going to have to depend on whether I can actually get this album. That follows. Well, Melville and the Whale Music soundtrack are the ones that critics keep holding up as prime examples of everything this nation is capable of. They did also release an album last year. That was their first record in like 15 years. Okay. Here Come the Wolves. And I got a lot out of that one. That was a lot of fun. And from there, explore your catalog. Or more realistically, you won't. <laughs> I'd, I'd say if we're going on the realistic, yeah, probably not. Yeah, yeah. I may check out their other two big albums and then just say, well, this is probably not for me. It's where you get off the train. This is, yeah, like, I've taken those few stops and uh, now it's time to catch a different train. Not unreasonable. This is music that asks something of you, and when you ask something of someone, you have to be okay with it when they say no. Yeah. <laughs> this has been the soundtrack to a life. Follow along on Facebook and Twitter at SoundtrackCast, SoundtrackCast.com. Like us, share us, rate us, review us. Five-star reviews with an even one-sentence actual review attached to them are super helpful as far as getting the word out on podcasts. Mike, you got anything you want to push right now? Nothing. Fair. Then go out there and listen to some Rheostatics. Mike has strong opinions on them, and those opinions are wrong. Rheostatics are good, actually. We'll be back in two weeks to talk about something else that is probably equally hot-cold in terms of how their audience responds to them, now that I think about it. Mm -hmm. Tune in for that. Purify me.